So, thank you everybody for coming to our Science of Science Fiction talk. Um, we're gonna talk loud, because we don't have speakers. So if you can't hear, just raise your hand or throw something. Um, we'll see how good your accuracy is. Um, my name is Rufus Cochran. Um, I am the founder and executive director of Indiana Sciences. We're a nonprofit based in Indianapolis here um, that does science communication and outreach. So you can find us at a lot of the local conventions, Gen Con, PopCon, Starbase. Um, and we also do a couple of other series in the city. Um, one is called Books, Booze, and Brains. Um, we do a monthly book club at local breweries and we read a book with a science theme. Um, and then we have a subject matter expert lead a conversation in a local brewery. So you'd have nice beer, food, talk about a science book. Um, the, on the back of my shirt here, at Indiana Sciences, you can follow us um, and you can see all the stuff we're doing and a lot of our stuff is live streamed. So you can check it out anytime you'd like. Um, I've got introductions here. Um, would you guys prefer me to introduce you or would you like to introduce yourselves? Okay, so first, our first panelist, super excited, Dr. Muhammad Noor. Um, if you have not got a copy of his book yet, Live Long and Evolve, it is great. Uh, we did a speed read of it in the two days leading up to it, and it was <laughs> great. Um, I, I want to turn it over to you. Please take a second and introduce yourself, because okay. there's Thank a lot of cool stuff, but I don't know what you want me to focus on. Oh, you're very <laughs> kind. I mean, it's fine. I mean, I'm a biology professor at Duke University, and I like teaching about science concepts by using depictions in sci-fi, especially Star Trek, when I can. So, and, and on the side, I've been an occasional science consultant for some of the current Star Trek series. Awesome. Um, and Professor Paul Quiet, um, I'm going to have you introduce yourself yeah, as no, well. No problem. Yeah. So I'm a professor of physics at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. Um, I'm a quantum physicist. I do experimental optics. Um, maybe to just put things in context, uh, two years ago the Nobel Prize in Physics was to three guys who did studies of entanglement. Anyway, I worked with one of them as a postdoc and invented the source that was used on the first teleportation experiment. So I have some, some creds, at least a little bit, about how some of these things work. And uh, the other thing is I've run a uh, science-based escape room uh, in town, which was maybe going to come here and will come here next year uh, instead. And yeah, I'm keenly interested in outreach and getting people to not be afraid of science and to see that it is a good thing as opposed to something to be feared and, and, and avoided at all costs. To start here with uh, with the different topics, we've got evolution, bio, evolutionary biology. We've got physics, quantum physics. My day job, um, I'm a data scientist at a local um, medical device manufacturer, um, and so like the machine learning AI stuff is my background. And you talked about like getting people over the fear of things, um, and that leads me into a topic I was actually going to save for later but uh, I thought would be now kind of an interesting place to start. So who here has watched the new series? Uh, so like Lower Decks, Picard, Discovery, Strange New Worlds, okay. So no spoilers, right? I'm just gonna kind of talk uh, at a high level. One of the things that's pretty common across those is um, the, the big bad in a lot of those is AI right now, right? 
So in Lower Decks, you've got Badgie, which you'll learn about um, as you watch that series. And if you haven't watched Lower Decks, I'll say it's it's right now my favorite of all of the new Star Treks coming out because it is hilarious. It's very... Uh, it's got a lot of Easter eggs for folks who have watched the shows, but it's also very accessible if you haven't watched the shows. Um, a couple of my interns, um, I encouraged them to check it out, and they had not watched Star Trek and loved it. Um, Picard has the synthetics, right? The the biggest big bad we've we've seen in the universe almost. Uh, and then Discovery's got control, right? In the early series, all of these series have the big bad of, of AI, um, and so. One of the topics, one of the things that I thought we could have as an undercurrent here, now that I like that you said this uh, idea of um, not fearing things is kind of demystifying some of the, the AI stuff. Um, but I don't want to start fully with my stuff uh, in the AI realm. This gives me like a good idea, a nice spot, I thought, to start with um, different types of computers. And I think actually with the three of us, we can talk about all three different types of computers that exist in the Star Trek world. So um, Voyager, there's an episode called Learning Curve. Um, does anybody remember the episode where the ship gets a cold? Uh, so the Voyager ship has these neurogel uh, packs and it gets a virus and the ship starts malfunctioning, right? So these are organic computers um, that are how the ship processes information, which aren't too far from how the concept of artificial neural networks were developed. Um, but then the other side of the, the computing are duotronic and multitronic, and positronic, right? Um, but we don't really get like a clear view on what these types of computers are. Um, but as we look at the advancement of AI and things, um, one of the areas that's gonna unlock some of the most potential today is quantum computing. And we happen to have like a quantum expert in the room. So like selfishly, I kind of wanted to uh, maybe turn over and do the first kind of question around looking at these different types of like quantum computing in the Star Trek world. Like what are some areas there where you see like the show getting it right or potentially kind of pointing the direction of where we could go um, on that? Ooh, good question. Um, so I, I'm going to make statements that I believe to be true specifically about quantum computing and <laughs> less uh, about the whole uh, architecture of, of what's in uh, what's in Star Trek but so quantum computing is is basically based on uh, instead of classical computing which is based on bits things that are zeros and ones quantum computing you can have things that are quantum bits or qubits as they're called and uh, I guess the uh, there I brought I brought my uh, my little demo here so you know, a classical thing can be a zero or a one, and the thing is the quantum can be a zero and a one at the same time. So in the superposition of both of them. And there's actually lots of examples that are not so weird. So for example, you can use uh, the polarization of light. That's one way you can encode information. Uh, and you could use like horizontal to be a zero and vertical to be a one. And you could have something that's horizontal and vertical at the same time, and that's just diagonal. So if you have polarizing sunglasses on, you tilt your head by 45 degrees, you are making diagonally polarized photons so you can make superposition. So it doesn't have to be like super way, way out there. On the other hand, um, it's not that easy to make quantum com computers. It's hard to keep, it's hard to keep, actually, let's keep my quantum computer out here. Here's the, here's the problem why they're hard, which is that they interact with the environment and then they don't stay in superpositions of zeros and ones. So that just makes it a, a trick to do, but there's lots of people who are working on quantum computers right now. And if you could get 
about um, a million good quantum bits, uh, then you can do problems that would take trillions of years on classical computers, which of course is much, much more than the age of the universe. So you can do things like simulating exactly a virus or coming up with a cure for a virus in a couple minutes, things that would take you know, a very, very long time. So I would imagine that in, you know, when you start doing interstellar travel and you've got the complexities of warp drive, I don't know how warp drive actually works, but anyway, uh, presumably you need to do things very carefully when you're doing it so you don't end up in the middle uh, of some other object or something like that. There's a vast amount of computation and optimization that has to happen, and that would be a case where you might imagine that a quantum computer could be, could be quite good for something like that. Um, it's not clear. There are certainly problems that quantum computers are, are unlikely to be good at. Uh, so there are things that are even too hard for a quantum computer, uh, which I think is good because I think if you have like an all-powerful thing, it just leaves in science fiction, then you don't have any, you lose a story if everything becomes instantaneously calculable. Uh, there's just like never a problem for anything. It's like, okay, what's the optimal thing to do in this situation? You hit the button, you have the answer, and then there's no, there's no struggle, I guess, as, yeah. as there is. Um, I, I love that example too, like you accidentally come out of warp and you park yourself in the middle of the sun. I think that happens in some of the later Dune books where whole armies disappear because they can't uh, land their ships in the right place. It's a big thing in Battlestar Galactica with the jump drive. There you, you go. that up all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so like these types of breakthroughs in computer processing are things that can send us a just light years forward. They're also one of the reasons why when you look at is AI gonna take over everything and destroy the world, blah, blah, blah. Not yet, it could. I'm not a Luddite and I don't think that there's no chance, but like right now, not having easily accessible quantum computers really puts the AI at a disadvantage, right? Because uh, if you look at what it takes, uh, look at the energy bill for the chat GPT servers and how many millions and millions of dollars a month they have to keep to keep that amount of energy and that amount of data stored. Um, and that's not even uh, artificial general intelligence, the holy grail that people are searching for, right? Um, but quantum computing, to his point, um, when we get there, right now I think we're what, we're like at eight bit quantum computers take up, it's like the old uh, tube computers, and like an eight bit uh, quantum computer, I think IBM and Google are on, in the race to get those, they take up whole like, expensive because they have to be very cold yeah. oftentimes, like tens of millikelvin, and that's just a lot of cooling. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're probably more at around 50 or something like that, but not very high quality. And maybe I'll just say one other thing in case people haven't actually heard of this. So the thing is, if, if you had like a laptop and you want to double the computational power of that, the easiest thing to do is you get a second laptop and then you've doubled it. If you have a thousand qubit quantum computer and you want to double its computational power, you make it a thousand and one qubits. If you make it a thousand two, then it's four times more powerful, a thousand three, it's, it's eight times more powerful, so it grows exponentially. And you can, you can simulate any, as you would know, you can simulate any computer on any computer. So any computer can, can simulate any other computer, even a quantum computer. You can simulate a quantum computer with a classical computer, but if you want to simulate a thousand qubit quantum computer with a classical computer, you need two to the 1,000 bits. And two to the 1,000 is an unimaginably big number. It's basically 10 to the 300, so you know, one with 300 zeros after it. And that is way more than the number of particles in the universe, as far as we know. So you run out of electrons and protons before you can begin to simulate even just a 1,000 qubit quantum processor. So that gives you a sense of where the power is. Um, and you know, the limitations, it's hard to, it, 
it's hard to say what the limitations are. So for example, people are now banking that you cannot, you can make algorithms that you cannot hack with a quantum computer, so-called post-quantum crypto. So there's a huge effort right now around the country to try and make, and around the world, to make algorithms that won't be hackable by a quantum computer so that you can have secure communication once people have quantum computers. Because that's one of the first protocols or the first algorithms that people came up with with quantum computers are ways that you can hack existing communications. Anything that you currently have, like an HTTPS, the S right now, if you had a large-scale quantum computer, is hackable by that in a pretty short amount of time. So people are now trying to come up with things that they hope won't be hackable, and uh, they don't really know. Encryption is dead in quantum computers. And the last thing, because we've got a lot of topics, the last thing yeah, I'll yeah. say on this is, like, uh, to the point you made earlier, quantum computers aren't the best at everything. A lot of those standard, like, one plus one computations a, a quantum computer is actually slower uh, than a classical computer. And if you've ever looked at computer architectures, that was, you know, my sophomore year of college in computer art engineering was, you know, work on the, the core of it. it. The big thing is just adding addresses of where memory is stored. One of the biggest things your computer is doing is going, where do I need to get this from? Is it over there? Okay, I'll bring it back, I'll put it here move it here. That is actually faster with a classical computer than a quantum computer. So to his point, you'll need, you'll need both running. Uh, the quantum computer just doesn't make everything. Hi hybrid, yeah. yeah. You do a hybrid system where you have a classical that does as much as it can and then you have a quantum graphic card or whatever that speeds it up. Was he the idea? And so, and so here's where we're going to curve, right? We're going to spin around. So we've got this idea of the bio-neural gel packs, right? Uh, this, this is a a semi-living ship, we may say, right? And it's this idea of, you know, with um, like our brains, we're growing new pathways. We are, you know, sending different chemicals um, along different channels. And so it's a lot more than the ones and zeros of computers. Um, and so one of the things I wanted to toss it over to, to Mom Moore for was in, in this realm of where we have kind of like this technology and biology crossover, like where is science fiction, where is Star Trek getting that right? Where is it veering? Where are kind of the, the gems that you see in, in those spaces? Yeah, well, obviously the, the biggest one that has been pushed very far is of course the Borg in this context, right? That's the, the complete, you know, merger of the biological and the technological. Uh, it's interesting because I mean, as a biologist, I actually don't think there's as big a difference between, say, like bio, something that's organic. Or organic's a tricky word because organic, from a chem chemical sense, just means carbon-based. But I'm talking organic in a biological sense. Something like I am a computer. Like my brain is a computer, and and people always think like, well, no, it's different. Like, nah. But the differences there are subtle, right? I mean, it's still like it has a physical basis. There, there are things happening, and essentially, when this neuron fires, this is the outcome. There's a lot of the, Essentially, I always say that you could write a computer program of a person if you could have enough if-then statements in there that were correctly coded. So in that sense, I mean, we're not actually that different. Now, with Voyager, you mentioned the bioneural gel packs. It never really fully explains what exactly those are, I mean, aside from just having that word in there. I mean, my guess is in some way, some of it is just in terms of transfer of information. So maybe it's using action potentials or something like that, information. I'm not sure that's actually better than using a, you know, an actual like wire. <laughs> but. I can imagine some ways for it. Now, what would be great, and I think you alluded to this, is if it has some sort of self-healing capability. That would be great. 
All right, that, that there's a clear advantage to that. Obviously, it's not foolproof using the example of the episode that you were coming back to. Is that the one with the Neelix cheese? Is that the one that comes? Yes. That's what yeah. I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. Like, could a microbe of some sort infect, say, a bioneural gel pack? In principle, yeah. I mean, it depends on exactly what the microbe is looking for. But essentially, if something can get in there and can start reproducing, I mean, in some sense, it's no different. Again, like a computer virus and a organic virus are not actually all that different. It's just a, like, this thing gets in and it just starts replicating. You know, we really are just in a, in a grand sense computer. Are you raising your hand? Or? Yeah, I think, okay. I think it was a Star Trek, one of the Star Trek novels, might have been Lose the Peace, where there's actually a, um, a techno virus that in the transporter buffer, like, bypasses the transporter filters, like, biofilter, disease filter, yeah. um, and, like, it's a virus that encodes itself both technologically and inside, and like as yeah. a virus inside the biology. So it's um, really, if I remember it right, it's really cool. That's cool. Yeah, I'm not really familiar with most of the novels. I read a couple really early on or something like that. But no, actually, I'm glad you mentioned the, the, the filters. The filters are a fascinating thing because you know, we're also kind of like failing a lot. They're failing a lot, but well, to some extent, the fact that they work at all is kind of amazing because like, you know, me and my body or any of you here, we're all like an ecosystem. It's not like if you just pull out anything that doesn't have Muhammad DNA, like that person's going to die, <laughs> right? Because we have all sorts of like, we have, you've heard of the, the microbiome. It's like a big catcher. So, so I mean, they'd have to know like every single thing that wasn't there. So I'm guessing what happened is that, that it has to do something when you're beaming away to like track all those organisms there and then say, okay, let's make sure it's the same set. But what if they're beaming somebody on for the first time? How did they do the filter? Because like, they don't know, like, you know, what's good and what's bad. I mean, the fact that those things work at all is just kind of amazing. And that's not, setting aside the whole Heisenberg uncertainty principle, which it completely violates. But, then, but that's more in your realm than rather than my realm. <laughs> But no, it's fascinating to think about how those things work. And from the computational side, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a like biological computing sort of person, but I've never, I've never found that problematic. Except sometimes I always think like, is that actually better? <laughs> that's the one piece that always gets to me from it. Yeah, no, that's fair. And you touched on another thing though that I think is really good. You're talking about like the, the definitions of life on yeah. like, the organic or are yeah. not. And one of the, one of the things that that comes to mind is the like right now we do a lot of uh, anthropomorphizing yeah. of like these AI systems that mm. we work with um, and in, there's a really good episode um, in the next generation I consult my notes here so I remember the name um, of uh, called evo call evolution. evolution right so yeah. uh, Wesley has got a science experiment he's got some nanobots they get loose and they start like evolving yeah. and very rapidly you know, become one with the ship. Um, yeah. This is a thing that happens in a couple of different episodes where, you know, foreign uh, uh, particulates, you know, yeah. in, interact with the ship. And I was wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit about like this, the idea of this, uh, like synthetic evolution, how that can kind of compares sure. with. Okay. So yeah, so evolution. Evolution is an interesting one because the context of this is, remember there were these, there was these little tiny robots uh, that were used for medical procedures, and what what Wesley did is he, he was manipulating them, and he did something where like they could start to work together. Uh, they might change in some way, right? So that was great. Um, Star Trek and science fiction in general tends to conflate living with sentient, <laughs> right? Like it very much as they say, like, oh, we know it's alive now because now it's like talking to us and zapping people very intentionally and showing all this intentionality and things like that. 
there's a lot of things that are living that like E. coli is alive. You know, it's clearly not sentient by any definition uh, by any definition of sentient that we would ever use. Those initial ones there, they you know, if they are capable of self reproduction, I mean, I feel like at that point, like they're living, irrespective of how they were originally made, they're alive, right? But it's interesting. Star Trek always conflates those two things. Now, they were able to evolve to I mean, essentially, like when you think about what is the definition of life, there's a whole set of things, but all the definitions kind of suck because it's all based on what we've learned from all life on Earth, which is all has one origin, right? You know, all all life is is uh, directly related. So there's definitions they say it's like does it have physiology? Does it have um, does it reproduce? Does it experience natural? So you hear these things all the time. But mules, mules don't reproduce. They're still alive, right? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things like you could find exceptions for almost any of those rules, and you can find exceptions the other way. Like you know, one of the, I think one of the parts of the definition is like growth. Crystals grow, you know. We don't consider them alive. So I mean, it's interesting that. that I feel like, and this is one of the things that comes up all the time in exobiology, is like what definition of life should we use when we're looking for life that may not be at all related to something we found on Earth. And I'm not sure that the, the definitions we use right now may not hold, because when we start looking at other things, like, oh, that was actually a very narrow definition. Let me give you an example. Let's say, how many of you played Settlers of Catan? Yeah, decent number of you, okay. Let's say that was the only game you'd ever seen. Or maybe you'd have like a couple of variants of it, like Seafarers of Catan and Cities and Knights of Catan, things like that, right? You would define game as this thing that has four to six players, and there's dice, and there's little cards, and things like that. So, okay, you see Monopoly on some other world. It's not related, but you're like, yeah, I can see that that's a game. Okay, what about somebody playing Solitaire? Is that a game? <laughs> what about somebody playing Rugby? <laughs> you know, is that a game? I mean, those definitions, like, if it's based on this very limited knowledge, then that definition may not be the definition you're going to want to use in the future. I mean, people may say that is the definition of life on Earth, but that may not be the definition of life in the world. So this is one of the interesting sort of concepts when you start thinking more broadly about something that's truly, truly foreign. And, and in the case of the, the, I can't remember what they're called, nanobots or something like that. I can't remember what they were called. Yeah, in that they, uh, I think they just generally call them like nanobots. Yeah, okay. Anyway, those nanobots, yeah, the, yes, they're synthetic in the sense they were made by uh, humans, but essentially, as soon as they were reproducing, like, yeah, they're alive, as far as I'm concerned. Like, yeah, done. <laughs> they're at that point, not, not different from, say, like, you know, E. coli. Yeah. And, and then, you know, bring that back then to the, you know, I was thinking about the biofilters, so the way you were yeah. talking about that is, like, uh, there is, um, I'm forgetting the name of the episode, but the Riker goes down on a planet, gets uh, bitten by a vine, Oh, and no. it's not the sheets of gray. There you go. And it, it's not <laughs> seen by the biofilters because it's like yeah. like directly in like his That was the clip show episode at the end of season two. Yes, it was definitely <laughs> a clip episode. <laughs> um, but like th those things it's like, you know, those definitions of life and what is and isn't alive. Yeah. Um, you missed you mentioned like the crystalline uh, like the crystal side, and there's yeah. episode Home Soil. Yeah, uh, where I love that episode. Yeah, so they, they go onto this planet. Yeah, um, there there's a mining thing, and, and the the head miners like there's there's obviously no life here. I've ran the tests. We got to stay yeah. on schedule. And anybody who's worked in industry knows that guy and has had him as a project. Manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so well, what they eventually find out is like these lasers start trying to like kill them, and you know. The, the world is starting to attack back, and it's because yeah. there is this non-organic life. Do you want to say more? Sure, about sure. That? Yeah. yeah. So that one's interesting. This is, if you guys might remember the ugly bags of mostly water that, that, <laughs> that episode. Yeah. But that was an interesting one because there, remember I said organic literally just means carbon-based from a chemical definition. 
leverage. In that case, that was a case of silicon-based leverage. Also, it's like the Horda from the original series was also uh, silicon-based. Mm. Maybe, the, maybe the crystalline entity might be too. I don't know what the crystalline entity I don't is. think we ever talk about what they actually Yeah, no. <laughs> but, I mean, it's true that, like, everything we know from life, you know, all the pieces of life, carbohydrates, nucleic acid, like DNA and RNA, protein, all those things have a carbon backbone. You know, silicon, yeah, it's, you know, it's right below carbon on the periodic table. It, like carbon, can bind up to four other atoms. So, I mean, in principle, could you have something with silicon? There's, there's a lot of issues with it, but in principle, it's not impossible, right? So that was very creative. I like that. I like that it was one of the few cases that they were encountering some sort of life that was uh, microbial, and it was natural microbial, too, because most of life is. We're so used to, like, you know, oh, land on this planet, and look, there's another hominid. Oh, shocker. You know, <laughs> and there's trees. Oh, shocker. Yeah. But this was, like, actually a microbial life, and it was new, and they were really interested. So I love that aspect, too. But it was, again, one of those things where they were debating it, debating it, debating it. When it reproduced, they were kind of like, well, maybe it's alive. Like, it reproduces, obviously alive. But then when it started talking, like, oh, now it's alive. Like, okay. <laughs> like, like how, many, how many things talk to us today right now that are not humans? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but we consider them all alive. So that, that's another one where they still, it was much, much better, and I enjoyed it a lot, but they still came back to that same sort of trope of, of it has to talk to us before it counts. <laughs> now, some of that may be thinking, like, is that what life worth preserving, right? Now, that's not what they were saying, but the, that could be that. And that was, and that was actually well done in um, Wrath of Khan. You remember when Carol Marcus was scanning the, the plant they were going to launch the Genesis device? They were like, she's like, not even a microbe. There can't be anything alive down. I was like, oh, yes, you acknowledged other life. Good job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, I, and I was thinking, too, of like other, place, other uh, science fiction that's done that. Uh, if the original Guardians of the Galaxy comics from like the 60s and 70s, Martin X from Pluto yeah, yeah. is a silicon-based life ah. form. So have you ever seen the meme of the guy sitting alone on Pluto like this? Oh, yeah. Like, that's Martin X from the original Guardians of the Galaxy comics. Um, and that, yeah, no, that's fascinating. So the, the silicon thing, I mean, one of the challenges with it is, like, carbon, you can actually make nice long chains with it and branched and things like that, and just carbon, 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 carbon like that, with, with other things like hydrogen and oxygen on it. Silicon would rather bind to like oxygen and hydrogen than it would to like, another silicon. So it's hard to keep that long thing, which was something really good in the episode um, uh, that had the Horda. Uh, what was the name of the episode? Devil in the Dark. Thank you. In that episode, McCoy made a comment specifically saying silicon based life is biologically impossible, especially in an oxygen atmosphere. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that was pretty, that was pretty on target there. Like, good job, McCoy. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And, and so I, the lingering, the biofilter thing is lingering in the back of my head now that like the teleporter stuff's in my head. So I'm going to go back, back there because um, I was thinking, you know, teleportation, one of the things um, like subspace communication um, and the show takes like a lot of time, right? And you've got a, if you remember an enterprise, they're like dropping relays behind them everywhere so they can get uh, communication back. But that's one of the things when we look at technology today, like where does Star Trek get it right and where did it maybe like miss a, a thing that is coming or has come, um, like quantum communications, right? So um, one of the things that's really fascinating, who here has read um, Ender's Game, uh, the book or seen the movie or whatever? So I've seen the movie anyway. So one, of the, yeah, so, so one of the things in Ender's Game, and I promise we come back to Star Trek, we're not going on a deviant uh, thing here. So uh, the, they have a device called an Ansible. Uh, and so the humans are getting wiped out by these insectoid-like creatures, and they are just able to, at you know, a second's notice, know all the where everybody is and react in perfect timing out in the field. And the humans are like, 
this is a huge tactical advantage, they're crushing us, how do we get this Ansible, what is it? And it's a device that allows instant communications across infinite vastness of space, right? And you're like, that's obviously science fiction, that can't happen. Well, uh, in 2017, uh, Chinese scientists took two quantum entangled bits, put one in orbit, and the Quest program flew it around and were able to, those two bits, quantumly entangled bits, will change one, the other one changes instantly. So you have instantaneous communication, right? And so this is one of the things, these ideas of quantum communication, Star Trek, you're waiting for these long, you know, relays, but there's possibly communication technologies that already exist where you can do that. And now another thing, and I'm gonna make a, a purposeful faux pas here, in the quantum world, you've got quantum teleportation, right, of like, have you, have you heard that term, quantum teleportation? Okay, well then, I'm gonna alley open to a quantum expert that we have, and we're gonna see if this is anything like the teleporters that we have in Star Trek, or if it's not. Yeah, so uh, first I have to, I'm afraid I have to burst your bubble about the instantaneous communication. Um, <laughs> but, but in a way, so this is a way that it's often uh, presented. It, it is true that you can have entangled particles that are, have a connection between them. And the connection, you can kind of think of it as like having two coins that uh, if you flip them, they'll always give the same answer. So if this one gives heads, this one will give heads. If this one gives tails, this one will give tails. That's a pretty good analogy. And it doesn't matter, they can be on opposite sides of the galaxy and that connection should persist. And one way you might think about the way that that happens is that when this one gives a result, there's information about that that instantaneously goes to the other one. And you, if, you wanna, if you wanna keep that uh, notion in your head, that's okay, I guess. Um, the problem is that to communicate, if I wanted to, to actually communicate with you, I would have to control whether you got, I mean, I could, instead of heads or tails, we could call them zeros or ones, so I could encode information that way. If I want to communicate a message to you, I have to control what you get. The problem is that when I flip my coin, I can't control what I get. I'm equally likely to get zeros or ones, so you're also equally likely to get zeros or ones. So actually, I, can't, I cannot send information instantaneously with entanglement. It is true that if I, I measure my coin, I will know instantaneously what you would get if you measure your coin. And so that's, but it's random what I get, so what we get is instantaneous non-local randomness. And you can, use, you can use that, actually, you can use that for encryption. You can use that for encryption. Mm -hmm. So you can use that to do perfectly secure encryption that in fact is secure against quantum computing or anything. Quantum cryptography is a big thing. There are lots of people working on it all around the, the, the country. And the, the group by Jean Wei Pan, uh, they also did quantum, quantum en encryption as well. Uh, they also did kind of a teleportation, but it was kind of a, a weird one in that they, they, they have these, they're trying to teleport this up to here and they have these entangled particles and if you measure these two, these two together, then this state sort of is on this this one instead. And so these guys could be it could be pretty far apart. It could be way away where you teleport this. However, the thing is, there's a measurement you have to make on this on this guy, and it has one of several possible outcomes. And you have to know which outcome you got so you can do a correction on this guy. Mm. And that information about the correction you have to send that classically, and that classically can only happen at the speed of light. Uh -huh. So you can't actually teleport someone instantaneously because you get, you, you could get something that was exactly the opposite of the thing that you wanted or with some other kind of transformation on it. Um, so that's, un, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. It's like all those, uh, those buffer errors. Yeah, and the other thing is that in teleportation, kind of what you're sending is information. Yeah. So you can think about it that way. So quantum information, 
it's different than classical. So classical information, you know, is just zeros or ones. And quantum information, because you can be a combination, arbitrary combination of zeros or ones, the way you actually represent it is on a sphere, where you would have, for example, zero here and one here, and you would have, you know, at the poles, and you would have zero plus one, zero minus one, zero plus i one, zero minus i. So all these other combinations of zeros and ones um, are sitting on the sphere. So that's an amazing amount of information in some sense. Um, but th that's the information. And if you have like an atom that's in, it could be in the ground state or an excited state or combinations of that, that's what gets teleported, not the actual matter of the atom. So that's mm -hmm. the thing that's different, which is that uh, in teleportation, you could, you, you could say that oh, I am completely described by the wave function of all of the atoms that make me up. That's tr I think that that's true. I think that that's also true from an evolutionary yep. perspective. And somehow that's connected with this filtering that must happen when they, when they do this. Somehow there's some measurement that's made. And it's that information that gets teleported and mapped onto some other physical system. And it wouldn't even have to be the same. It could be different atoms. You can teleport from photons to atoms or atoms to superconducting loops or something like that, so they don't even have to be the same. So that's also kind of an interesting concept that you might have. But nevertheless, there does have to be some, some if this is a two-level system like a ground and an excited state of an atom, you need to have some other thing that you're teleporting onto. And so this notion of having something disappear here and appearing in the midst of space where there's nothing else, that's very different than what we would, well, that's very different than what quantum teleportation is. On the other hand, of course, although when people say teleportation, they think Star Trek, of course, it's not ever called teleportation. I, I think that that's true, right? Yeah, yeah. It's that's only a train. You go to the transporter, mm -hmm. not the not the teleporter. Yeah. Um, there have been other examples where Star Trek has really got it right, though. I mean, like the communicator, of course. That was sorry. I should know the history. When was Star? What's the first Star Trek date? Sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Yeah. Okay, so that is well before the first cell phone, oh, yeah. before people had wireless communication, and so that was amazing, actually, mm -hmm. that they sort of came up with that, and it had it has all these other uses that you can do with it, just like our cell phones have other uses. Well, it wasn't a coincidence. The person who made the flip phone was inspired by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Well, and, that, and like just looking at kind of like that's a, a fun game that I really like to do is just looking at things from the series that. We've kind of talked in some general terms, but uh, I, I try to, in any of these talks, try and tie in like as many of the series as we can. And so one we haven't touched on yet is Deep Space Nine. Um, and so talking about the, the essence of a person, right, and maybe transporting them, maybe moving them, I'm gonna pull it back to AI for a second. One of the, one of the episodes in Deep Space Nine uh, called Meridian, uh, if you guys remember, Quirk is trying to get a hollow scan of Kira, right? And it's like, it's, it's comical and he's, you know, she just uh, lights him up for that. But that's a huge issue right now with generative AI. Oh. Uh, we actually, there's over a dozen uh, state and federal laws that were, I don't know how many of them finished for this uh, year, but for uh, against the non-consensual use of uh, deep fakes. So generating yeah. uh, realistic images, voices, and actions of people um, without their consent, right? And so that's a thing where we see in Deep Space Nine in the early 2000s, a, you know, that, that notion of these deep fakes of Kira getting scanned and being in the holodeck, right, for a uh, purveyor or whatever. Uh, 
use different terms, but somebody like with that, right? And so these these laws are very real, and it's not just for individuals or like small things. We see a lot of disinformation coming out of deep fakes of political figures, um, uh, the whole new field of, well, not an existing field, but really getting a, a new light shine on it of um, the forensics, of digital forensics, of, you know, are these original images, are these real? Is this audio real or is it generated? And it's getting harder and harder every time to tell that difference due to these new generative technologies. Um, so that's that's one of them. Can, can I jump back to another yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. I want to talk for a minute more about the transporters too. Like, yeah. I, 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 I'm curious to see if you agree. I say 100% they're death machines. They're 100% <laughs> death machines. Because what's happening is essentially you're, you're taking again like, what is the map of where all my atoms are or all my, you know, and then you're just reassembling something over there that's like that. But all my atoms, are like, uh, they've been disassembled. I am dead. Like, that is just a duplicate of me that's over there. It may have, like, all the memories I had, but, like, I am dead. <laughs> and there's a different me that's over there, so. Well, is it a different you? I'm going to argue it's not a different you in the following sense. That sure, every please. electron is indistinguishable from yeah. every other electron. Yeah, cannot yeah. be told apart. Every proton is indistinguishable from every yeah. proton. Well, it's a perfect so, replica. So if you, if you add them together, replica. there's no measurement that could be, happen that could tell them apart. That's fair. That's fair. But it's a, it's a perfect replica. But it's not what, like, none of the same matter was me. <laughs> it's, it's completely recomposed. Although it's interesting because in the quantum case, that's one of the things about quantum information that's different is that you cannot clone it. You cannot make a copy of an unknown quantum state. So yeah. it would be impossible to actually make a replica. It's really critical yeah. in this teleportation example that the original goes away yeah. and you only have the other one. You cannot make a copy of it, yeah. which it turns out is makes it really hard to do like error correction for quantum computers because in quantum com in, in regular computers often the way that you do error correction is you just say well I'll do the we'll take best two out of three we'll make we'll see you have three people do the calculation and whoever and you kind of do that throughout the whole the whole computation and you keep correcting errors that way and you can't do that in the quantum case because if you make a measurement in the middle, you 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 collapse the whole thing, you kill it. So you yeah. can't yeah. you can't clone it. So that's a, it's it's kind of interesting that yeah. it, it's related to that too. I'm, I'm assuming if you had enough memory in the computer, you could make instead of like I beam away and like 50 beam down on the on the surface, it just made 50 replicas, right? Oh, in in Star Trek, yeah, yeah you could yeah. in theory if you had a big enough well, computer. You just need one Riker to have a replica uh, a transporter clone, and that's there you go, right? Yeah, that's there you go. yeah, yeah. <laughs> just keep well, making them. And and I. <laughs> so everybody don't hold me to this. I'm going to be a little out of my depth. I'm trying to remember an article I read. But uh, looking at like the, the concepts of consciousness and memory from like a physiological and biological standpoint, aren't, aren't there some prevailing theories of that like parts of memory are, are not just stored in the, the pathways and the charges, but also in the close um, proximity of the different pathways. There are quantum fields that are generated by those um, like close neural pathways that in turn can encode information on top of that system, or am I? I don't know. I don't know well, the answer to that. Especially when you the word quantum, like oh, it's you, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what a quantum pathway is in this yeah. case. I mean, there's chemical connections. Yeah. Some kind? Yeah. So like, uh, the at least what I'm vaguely remembering, and I feel like this is already a dead end. Drive headlong into the wall. Go. Yeah, you, just, you have a lot of, of these different uh, bi the biological pathways, the uh -huh. nor nor chemical ones, but then in between all of those electrical fields that are moving, there is a quantum field generated I, I don't that know has what, its own. I don't know what a quantum field is. Oh, well then, then 
will pass. There are electrical fields, yeah. certainly, and magnetic fields, mm. uh, gravitational fields, which are far too weak to play a role. And mm. then there's chemical, yeah. chemical yeah. interactions. I agree with all that. But, but even yeah. all the chemical, the the interactions, like the chemical interactions are all actually just electrical yep. interactions exactly. with a little bit of mag magnetic interactions. Exactly. Well, then that's what you get for talking out of your depth. <laughs> uh, okay. So, question. Call back to the amount of power required for a computer that could do something like that. Yeah. Like, and to, like, to be able to put you back together magnetically, electrically, chemically, <laughs> and then have the matter at the place you're going to go to. That, that latter part's never been explained. I love your, your space example is a great one. You beam someone to space, like, okay, what's it using? Because you were describing <laughs> how, like, how big the, just the champ, uh, GPT computers are. Yeah. Like, so to be able to put you back together someplace else where maybe that matter might exist. Yeah. In, in so, the same. So looking at, like, I, I think a fair thing to say is, like, right now, with our current, like, computing processing power, it, there, there isn't a computer big enough, yeah. like to do that, right? It's, it is only when we get a, a couple steps further in the process that we could even begin to entertain like what that would be, because like, like we said, ChatGPT right now, millions of dollars, big server farms, like a, there's a ton that it takes to run that, and that's just for a thing that, like mimics, like human speech, like like maybe pair it, like that's the best, right? For, for the matter piece, what works better? Yeah. Sorry, I keep coming back to Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons coming out of that soup thing, mm -hmm. right? That works much better in terms of the matter, because it's like, well, here's the soup, and I'm assuming it has all the stuff it needs, as opposed to just like, somehow like, the bits of carbon were all sucked out of the air and brought into the Yeah, I mean, you fire. almost need, a, you need like a wormhole to suddenly put matter into a place yeah. where there wasn't matter before. Yeah. In, in terms of power, I mean, I, did, I, just, I had a colleague who was working on quantum computing and, and calculated if you want to make a quantum computer that can crack a code that you can't crack with a laptop or any, lap, any laptop, basically. He said the power that you would need is, um, he was going to Toronto and he calculated it was 10 times the, the total power consumption of the city of Toronto running for like a week or something wow. like that. Uh, so that's Just not so good. But, that, but, but part of the thing is that that's with, that was with old technology and you learn how to do things more and more efficiently. We've certainly seen that with all of our, with all of our technologies. They, they do get more efficient. Now unfortunately we also try and have them do more and so yeah. they get more efficient but they require more power not less because we're not asking them to do the same thing. We're saying, oh I want Word but I want my letters to be plaid font or something like that and then I got to keep track of what does the plaid font look like when it's rotating in three space. If you only stuck with the old things, yeah. it would be smaller instead of bigger. Well, the two great examples of that, right, is like we landed on the moon with like a TI-84 graphing calculator, yeah. the equivalent processing, and the, uh, the mission to Pluto uh, I'm just forgetting the name of that mission, but it, it used the same processor as a PS1. Wow. So, like, it, it was that same process, right? And so, it, that amount of computational power can get you to the moon, out to Pluto, right? But when you want your plaid Comic Sans fonts, <laughs> right? We're using a lot of processing power for that, right? Um, so that's that's a really that's a really good point. Like the more we, the farther along we get, uh, the more, especially with the front end of the UI, the human, how do I talk to this computer? We put a ton more processing power into that. Um, just to answer the question about how much computing power you need for a transporter, there are ten to the twenty-seven atoms in an average human body. Yeah. So that's a lot of 
particles you have to keep track of because that's not even electronic protons, that's just atoms. The raw matter. That's just the raw number of atoms. <laughs> Yeah, it's not actually clear whether or not you need to keep track of all the quantum states of them. If I, if I, if instead of having superpositions of ground and excited state in some of your cases, we just kind of erase the coherence between them, uh, it might be that you don't really notice. It's not, I think we don't, since we don't understand what consciousness actually, is that a yeah, fair, yeah, a fair yeah, statement? We don't really understand consciousness. It's hard for us to answer, do you need quantum mechanics to have consciousness since we don't really know exactly what consciousness is? If, it could be that if you just erase all the quantum mechanics from a person, eh, they'll still more or less yeah. like cherry <laughs> pie exactly the I'm same that sure, they like cherry I'm pie sure before. A person who is entirely negatively charged in every single atom that just reappears is going to be a <laughs> he's okay. Yeah, he's okay until he meets someone else, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and that's a good that's a great point. And I think that ties us back to an idea of like this what is consciousness thing. And um, we talk a lot about you know this artificial general intelligence and these more ideas of like you know are these things you know reaching these different points and um, like you put two philosophers in a room and we can't get anywhere close to like what is consciousness right there's a lot of debate in, in those areas and one of the things uh there's two star trek episodes and i'm i'm just going to touch on one to kind of springboard over to i think our last topic um star trek voyager uh which we, i've hit twice now but we've got the original series yet i think we've almost got all of them we're not, count uh, we're not counting it's okay yeah uh, <laughs> so author author the the doctor writes a, a hollow novel about the ship and the crew and when he goes to uh, like publish it the company goes to publish it through takes full rights of it and uh, like sells it on their own because the author the, the doctor is not a human right and I will I will tell you uh, as of right now current US federal law um, the show got it wrong so a federal court ruled uh, in August of this year that AI-generated uh, content is not copyrighted because it's not made by a human. So uh, we're not the Federation. We don't have that, the, you know, the same morals that, that they do. But I thought that was a really interesting topic. Uh, and I realized you don't have as much time as I thought because I was going to segue into two other uh, topics. But I think we'll... We will start a wrap up now. Um, I think we have time. Do we have time for a question, or we have five? No. Five minutes. Okay, so we got time for a question. If somebody has a question from the audience, yeah. So to go back to what you were saying about what, like, what really defines life. Actually, I have heard about some. Uh, policies that NASA in particular has in place, and I'm pretty sure the ESA has in place for, uh, I can't remember what they're called, but when Cassini uh, and oh, yeah. the planetary protection protocol stuff, yeah. Uh, Saturn's moons, yep. they uh, had to crash all yep. those probes because uh, Titan in particular very well may have life. Yep. So, um, while the only kind of life that we know of, as you say, is carbon-based life, yeah. um, can you talk at all, yeah. I mean, you did talk a little bit about, uh, I say, silicon-based yeah. life, but Titan is nothing like Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so if there, if there is life there, it could uh, use methane instead of uh, 
instead of sugar as an energy source. So it might inhale hydrogen instead of oxygen. So can you talk more about the, uh, the broader definition of what we yeah. might consider to be no, that's a great question. So it's coming back to your point, though, there, there is, there's a planetary protection committee. There's a, actually, there's somebody who's actually hired as the, the planetary protection officer for Earth. Isn't that the coolest job title you could possibly have? <laughs> I mean, that's just amazing. You could be Earth's planetary protection officer. But it's two ways, both to protect Earth from things that could come from elsewhere, as well as, as you said, to make sure that we are not contaminating other surfaces. Because, yeah, it would suck if we're like, oh, look, we found something on Enceladus. Looks like it's life. Oh, it is E. coli. You know, that would, that would be really sad because we put it there or something like that. So yeah, so coming to your point though, I mean, you're right. I mean, and a lot of what happened on Earth has to do with the conditions here on Earth. So like we use, for example, water as a solvent. Now water for us is great as a solvent on Earth because, you know, it's liquid and liquid's very good for you know, a lot of these sort of things to happen. But Earth, most of Earth is between zero and 100 degrees Celsius, right? So yeah, so if you were on, let's say for example, you're in a much colder environment, maybe liquid ammonia would be much better. Right? And liquid ammonia, it actually could work almost as well as a solvent, not, not on Earth, but in general in terms of the properties it has, like it's polar and things like that. Yeah, that would probably work. It just doesn't work on Earth because we're just not cold enough to have that. Same sort of thing. And, and actually, I think Isaac Asimov had a paper from like the 1960s where he actually had various solvents and various... Um, uh, basically like carbon versus silicon. Huh, like interesting. That. Yeah, all those sorts of things saying like for a really hot environment this would be better borosilicane and really hot. I, I'm, I'm making that up. I don't remember if it was actually borosilicane. But he had a whole bunch of different ones for like very hot versus very cold. But yeah, a lot of it's just the confluence of what we have on Earth. That's why this particular life works really well. But yeah, as you said, if you're on Titan, you know, all bets are off. I mean, the environment is not the same as it is on Earth. So yeah, no, absolutely. And we can have some predictions in terms of, you know, these are the sets of things that are liquid. These are the sets of things that can assemble large molecules. But it's still, it's not great. Because I mean, there are potentially other options even on Earth, but we ended up with what we ended up with. So you could put probabilities around it, I guess is would be the best way to put it. It's a great question. So we are right at time. So first, I just want to give a big round of applause to our two experts. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.